RWJ Barnabas Health Telemed offers you two convenient ways to see a doctor anytime, anywhere, without having to come in for an appointment. If you're in need of urgent care, you can use our app to connect with a provider 24-7, right on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. Or you can use our website to schedule a virtual visit with an RWJ Barnabas Health Medical Group provider or specialist. And you can even register as a new patient. Book an appointment online at rwjbh.org slash telemed. Your safety has always been our top priority, and we've taken every precaution. So don't delay your care any longer. Get started today at rwjbh.org slash telemed. RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. everyone and welcome to another episode of our Speak of the Devils podcast presented by RWJ Barnabas Health, the official healthcare provider of the New Jersey Devils. I'm Chris Westcott. I'm filling in for Matt Lachlan today and Catherine Bogart from NewJerseyDevils.com and NJD.TV joins me as our co-host today as we uh, introduce a uh, very special guest today, Catherine. We're really excited to talk with Mark Frazier. Yes, Mark Frazier, a former NHLer. He played for the Devils. He was drafted by the Devils in his hometown of Ottawa. He's just an incredible person, an incredible athlete. And it's really inspiring to see how he's been using his platform. Even after his playing days, he said that he officially retired, but he's just an all around great person. And I'm very excited for our listeners to listen to this episode. Absolutely. And for uh, hockey fans listening, you'll remember Mark Frazier, a 2005 draft pick of the New Jersey Devils, 84th overall. He played uh, about 200 uh, games, 220 games in the NHL. He played a lot in the AHL. He carved out a nice little career for himself as kind of a big, tough, stay-at-home defenseman. But I think more importantly, Catherine, you're absolutely right. It's the human element. And, and one of the big reasons why we're talking to him today is he is just doing so many great things uh, in in the Black community as well as in the community at large and, and helping out um, – young hockey players from a very diverse and um, low income backgrounds as well. And we're going to talk to him a little bit more about that very shortly. And with that, we now bring in our guest, Mark Frazier. Uh, Mark, thanks for joining Catherine and I on the speak of the devil's podcast presented by RWJ Barnabas health. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate you guys having me on. Thank you. Yeah, well, we know that you're you're a pro with stuff like this. I mean, we were talking offline. You have your own green screen and everything. So, I mean, you're, you're very uh, tech savvy, but we're happy uh, that you're joining us here on the podcast. I'm going to throw you a curveball off the top here. Big Shug, where, where does that nickname come from? Give me the origin story from that. Absolutely. Um, so that came from my days in Toronto, actually. Uh, and I wish it was a better story than it is. Um, but we were in, uh, I was working out in the gym. And my teammate at the time, Mike Costco, was there and, and the TV was playing as uh, one of the music channels and it just said upcoming or like next band coming up, uh, Big Sugar. And he was just rolling out and he looked at me. He's like, that would be a good nickname for you. And it just eventually became Big Shug, Shug, Shuggy. And uh, it followed me from from there on. So, I mean, I, I definitely probably leaned into it a little bit because I, I like the idea of being called Big Shug. But um, yeah, it really just stemmed from uh the name of the band big sugar and someone thinking that would be a good name for phrase that's well, awesome have you ever and listened to big sugar that's the question yeah. too right no. Chris? <laughs> no exactly i'm sure i heard that song as it came on next but uh no idea no i, I i'm a little familiar with the band because of my name now but don't know any of their music <laughs> We, we heard you, you really embrace it. You got uh, the name embroidered on some Nikes as well. Oh, yeah. Well, you always got to get the fresh shoe game going. So I, <laughs> even when I was with the Devils, I was always going. Uh, my workout shoes were, were Devils colors. I go to Nike ID and like customize them. And again, it, what, my nickname would have been maybe Phrase or M Phrase. And then I just started making the big shug, uh, the Nike Air, um, Air Maxes. So yeah, I definitely had I had a road pair, I had a home pair, <laughs> and big big on one tongue and sugar on the other tongue or on the backs <laughs> of them. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess yeah, I leaned into it a little bit, I think. 
<laughs> no, it's a good, it's a good nickname to have. Uh, that's excellent. We'll get to more um, of Sugar and, and your clothing line in, in just a little bit. But first, uh, I wanted to ask, you know, you are a former devil uh, getting drafted by the Devils in 2005. Take me back to that moment and, and kind of set up your journey as a New Jersey devil and, and where it all began. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I was uh, quite fortunate um, when I did get drafted, I, I, that was the year of the lockout season in 05. So I knew that um, I'd already kind of been getting scouted a bit by the devils. And then, but because it was the lockout, the, there weren't many people other than I think first round expected draftees invited to, uh, into the draft. Fortunately for myself, the draft was in Ottawa where I'm from. So I was uh, at home. I went in the third round. I was, uh, of course the first round's televised. That's done now. So I'm refreshing like the family computer uh, listening on the radio, seeing like, you know, which one's faster. And yeah, I think, I guess it was 84th pick overall. Uh, the name came out, New Jersey Devils selecting from Kitchener Rangers and kind of like my brother and I'd be like, I don't think it's going to be anyone else right now. Fortunately, I already had two defensemen from the D, D partners from Kitchener who are actually already drafted first round. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure I was the only guy left. And yeah, hearing that name being called was, um, a dream come true. I mean, it was awesome. And then again, fortunately, because I was in Ottawa, I got the call shortly thereafter uh, to come down uh, to the West End, downtown Ottawa, where the draft was being held and rolled up with my brother, met Lou for the first time. Um, I, I might've met, I can't remember. I might've met him at the combine, but this was like the first real kind of interaction with Lou. Uh, don't still remember it very well. Don't forget those interactions uh, too much. But it was just great. I got to still do like the photo ops, you know, get all the new swag and the gear. Uh, so I was pretty, pretty happy about that. I still actually think I have some of the New Jersey Devils golf balls that were given to me <laughs> when I got drafted, whatever it was, like 16 plus 17, whatever years ago. Uh, but it was great. And then again, played one more year of juniors after that. Uh, had my first little taste of pro with the Albany River Rats at the end of that season. And uh, the next year we moved to Lowell. So I was able to start my career off with the uh, pesky Lowell Devils. And again, not prepared at all, but was fortunate to get a few call-ups that first year. Played seven games up. And, and again, I knew I wasn't ready, but it was awesome to kind of get that first taste and then to know what, set that bar, right? To know what, where you have to be to last in this league. So it was uh, three solid years of being the minors grooming as as the devils as lou likes to do uh, and i appreciate it, to be honest i wasn't rushed <laughs> and uh, lou certainly wasn't one to rush anything uh, but i was properly groomed and had the time and chances to grow under a great d coach there in kevin dean and then when it was a chance to make it um you know i felt a little bit more prepared as a 23 year old uh being a, a rookie with the new jersey devils officially well, Catherine, he's probably a better golfer than you and I, if he hasn't lost those golf balls yet. Yeah, <laughs> I should preface that I didn't lose them because I haven't played with them. I, there's like okay. three pack that I chose to get. I was like, I can't lose the, I've lost plenty as it is. I, I, I kept some as like a, I don't know, a little shelf ornament. <laughs> yeah. Believe me, I would be losing them if I played. <laughs> <laughs> when you think back to that first game that you finally got your NHL call up, what's the one thing that you remember all these years later? Well, the, again, the really unique, similar to the draft, the really unique thing for me in that situation is it was in Ottawa, where I'm from again. So I we were playing in Philly uh, with the Lowell team. Again, it was my rookie season. It was first week of January. So you're, you know, about halfway into the year now. And I just remember we had so many extra guys. We had like eight plus healthy scratches a game. And that was, some of those guys were veterans. We know how the AHL rules go with, you know, I dress a certain amount of vets. So... Everyone had been healthy, scratched, missed a game except me to this point. Mike Motto was just returning from injury from training camp. And Kirk Kleinendorf, our coach, came up to me after morning skate and against getting ready for the Philadelphia Phantoms. And he, I was expecting him to say, like, okay, Motts is back. This is your, um, your game to sit out. I was very much expecting that. As a rookie, I should, you know, why was I the only one who hadn't missed a game yet? And instead, I, he called me over and said, um, pack your bags. You got called up. There was an injury and, and you need to get up to, to Jersey. So I'm in the locker room afterwards, unpacking my gear as other guys are hanging up their gear for the game that evening, or sorry, I'm packing mine. And everyone's like, phrase, you're going up, you're going up. Where are they playing next? And someone's like, I think they're in Ottawa. And I was like, you're hold on. 
there's 20 other 29 other teams places I could be playing my first game and we're going to Ottawa uh, I again I don't know if that was maybe a gift given to me by someone uh, in <laughs> someone who likes to control everything in the organization or not but uh, that's one of my best memories is immediately hopped in the car drove to New Jersey met the team hopped on the plane flew obviously chartered flight like doing all of this for the first time just to land in Ottawa and get to have dinner with my family uh, after of course an amazing catered dinner at the hotel being like wow they got so much food up here <laughs> and uh the one of the most memorable things about the game itself um i did actually have a really big hit against patrick eves that was like on play uh, hits of the month or something uh but where i sat for most of the game besides <laughs> scott clemens because <laughs> i wasn't playing a ton uh the first couple seats beside the glass my family was able to get so my, they were rotating. It was my cousins, my sibling, uh, the siblings, my grandmother, who was my biggest fan, uh, Nana. Um, I don't know. She was diehard hockey fan until she was 98 years old, her last days. So that was just so unique and amazing that I had about 20 plus friends there. And immediately I could not have gone out of that dressing room fast enough to go see everybody. I'm sure I was still dripping in sweat. But it was just such an amazing moment to, again, similar to my draft of all places I could have experienced my first NHL game. It was my hometown, spur of the moment, but, you know, 36 hours notice and all my friends were able to get, my uh, family were able to get tickets and celebrate that moment with me. So I think sharing that first experience was something just I'll never, ever be able to forget. For you, how quickly did you realize how you had to play the game to stick in the pros and have a nice little career that you did. I remember in Edmonton, when, when you came there, they were happy to bring you in because you brought toughness, physicality, you like to hit your stay at home guy. How early on did you realize that that's the way you had to play the game in order to rack up some pro games? Uh, that's a good question. I'd say pretty early, uh, to be honest, I can recall back, I guess, entering the OHL draft, entering like the junior ages at 15, I guess, and playing in this big, really big prospects tournament in Toronto. And I went, it was back-to-back -back weekends, and I went both week tournaments uh, with two different teams from Ottawa. And I remember, I think it was the second time I went with kind of this sort of little bit of all-star team in Ottawa, and, and my former coach was coaching and said, there's a couple OHL scouts here that are kind of looking at you and might, you know, want to see a scrap. And I, I, I actually remember fighting some poor guy when <laughs> one of those games. And I remember my dad being behind the glass, like banging on the glass with excitement. So I was like, if my old man's okay with this, and, and then I think this is the role for me. Um, but I knew probably like from that fit, yeah, from my, I'm a late birthday. So right before my 16th birthday, I started playing tier two junior hockey here in Ottawa and, and was always that kind of role. I, I was always a good defender, uh, but this, the big body and physicality was something I knew was, was uh, an asset for me in hockey and, and then getting to Kitchener and then getting to the pros with New Jersey, again, such a wonderful defensive organization, defensively minded organization. Uh, it was kind of a no brainer. By the time I got drafted, it was very much, um, I had accepted and understood my role. I always, of course, you can always grow and evolve and everyone can get better. There's no perfect player. So there's always ways you can improve. Uh, but no, I knew that the defensive side of things was, was, I loved it. It was my specialty. I, I didn't like the pressure of needing to be the guy to score the goal, but I like the pressure of being the guy late in the game to prevent the, the tying goal or, or, you know, holding, maintaining that lead in the last couple minutes of a game in, in desperation times. And, and again, the, the, the using my body and my size to my advantage was one of, and that would, that would partially was what kept me, you know, I'm not a, a Scott Niedermeyer. I'm not uh, you know, Brian Rafalski. But using my size and physicality was a way where I could get advantages over some of the elite, talented players in the world. So that was something that I always loved embracing because it was my skill. Well, you transitioned perfectly to my next question, which was you mentioned your father banging on the glass and being excited for you. I wanted to ask you about Hugh because he's an interesting man. I mean, uh, Ontario Court of Justice Judge, uh, Honorable Mr. Justice mm -hmm. Hugh Frazier. Um, he was a Canadian sprinter. And a, and a highly decorated one as well. I, can you talk about his influence on you becoming an athlete and, and maybe your childhood with having him as a little bit of a mentor? Definitely. Yeah. He, um, yeah, as you mentioned, yeah, he was a Canadian Olympian, Olympian, a Jamaican immigrant, but a Canadian Olympic sprinter. And uh, for 10 years was the fastest man in Canada, right before uh, the Ben Johnson era. 
um, kind of handed the torch over to him and he had played, uh, he was also CFL drafted to the Toronto Argonauts. Like he, he had played football and, and track a lot growing up. And my brother and I, we just kind of, we played everything growing up. My mom was actually the hockey player in the family. And that's probably a little bit, well, other than being a Canadian kid, that's probably like geared me a bit to hockey, but yeah, growing up in a house, um, you know, with a, a dad who's or a parent, who's a, a former athlete of their own. One of the best advantages other than perhaps inheriting some great athleticism um, and genes was uh, uh, he had kind of been through it already. So as far as pressures, as far as certain expectations, even the recruiting process, you know, going through that with my brother and myself before I ended up in Kitchener, I was always trying to go NCAA route. So just having a parent who understood that process of the recruitment or how to perhaps put yourself out there or approach certain schools yourself with packages to get on the radar. Cause again, I wasn't always the sexiest player. So how can we make myself uh, available or, or in front, put myself in front of the eyes of, of big name schools. And that was an advantage uh, beyond that. Even in my pro career, the, the second time I actually returned to the devils in uh, 2014, 15, I believe it was between, I signed late, but it was between the Rangers or the Devils and kind of balancing which option was going to be better sort of, you know, a new opportunity or return to a familiar setting. And in those situations, being able to, again, talk things out with my dad, who obviously has a great understanding of his own son's career, but again, just having been there a little bit himself and, and appreciating the difficulty of, the game itself, the decisions in and around the game in your career, uh, how to rebound from the lows, uh, but how to maintain from the highs. And, and he taught me a lot as far, especially about being a black hockey player as well. His sport, uh, you know, he was in the same sport that I was in the sense where I was very much a visible minority, but the words of wisdom that he would have given me at tough times in my career were, you know, as, as minorities, a lot of times you have to work twice as hard for half the chance and having a father who's, who got that message from his father. Uh, but again, I can translate that to like the athlete, the athlete process and the politics and business behind sports. Sometimes uh, that, that was a really added value for me, having a dad who had sort of been there in his own experiences, in his own ways at a very elite top level as well. The helping me manage through, even with the devils, you know, with a guy like Lou, you have to learn early. You can't stress. You can't trip out about the things you can't control because <laughs> you'll lose your, you'll bang your head against the wall trying to figure out what Lou's up to. So even just, you know, words of wisdom like that on, uh, on, on just focus on yourself, control what you can control and, and don't try not to get, you know, busy minded with everything else, all the white noise in between. And those types of words of, of wisdom and guidance were, uh, very significant and, and helpful throughout my career. Mark, who were some of the black players that you looked up to with your own career throughout the sport? Uh, that's a great question. There's, well, I mean, my favorite player um, was Jerome McGinley. Uh, once I got to, I guess, like a young teen, like preteen age. Um, if, we, if we were on the second floor of my house right now, you'd see the McGinley jersey, the sign pitch, like all of it. I, I met him actually outside. The first time I met him, was uh, going into my draft year, so I was 17. It was right before, right when the Calgary had had lost in the Stanley Cup Finals to Tampa Bay the year before the lockout, and Team Canada was playing the World Cup, and they had a training camp here in Ottawa. Went to the West End, graduated high school student, about to start part-time university. Uh, I had my Ginla jersey on backwards so he could see the name in there. That's his jersey. I had pictures. I had cards. I had a cardboard cutout that my mom had brought back from the local grocery store of him, like in some cereal advertising or something. It was about a five foot tall cardboard cutout. And uh, I, there was even some of the other fans that had uh, pictures to be signed, whatever from the athletes. I bought one off a guy for $10, $10. I had five toonies on me for anyone who doesn't know, those are $2 coins in Canada. And it was his baby picture that was actually published in one of an article in the hockey news magazine. So long story short, this guy came, he, my dad had briefly talked to him in the lobby of the hotel. I was waiting kind of beyond the barricade. He came off the team bus, walked right up to me, signed everything I had, probably thought I was crazy because I even had a baby picture of his with like an afro that he signed. 
but he was so charismatic and he spoke to me and said, you know, I hear it's your draft year. Took the time. He came off the bus and, you know, came, targeted me. The, the first time I played against him with the Devils, I connected with him after the game and told him that story. And, and he went and got a stick and personalized it for me. And, and uh, he, I mean, he was just beyond just because we look alike. I had was able to look up to him, but he was such an amazing, tenacious athlete, an incredible leader, uh, incredibly charismatic. And he motivated me and inspired me as a young minority and a biracial hockey player to not, not just on the ice, to follow him, but off the ice, to be like him as well. So he was definitely one, the one I would look up to the most. But even as I've talked to a lot of black hockey players, even as a kid, uh, when we would play, when I would play, you know, Sega, or, or I think Sega was the first time I could create myself, um, but playing NHL, like hockey games back in the day, or PlayStation, whatever it was. And we'd go through the rosters and we'd like make trades to get all the black guys in the league on one team. And it was because, you know, when you have that physical manifestation of being able to see kind of yourself through other characters or celebrities, you believe that you can do it too. So in that era, it would have been like Mike Greer and Peter Worrell and Anson Carter and Kevin Weeks, um, all those names, Jean-Luc Grandpierre. Uh, but Aginla was definitely my, um, especially for Canadian kids, he was just such an amazing hockey player. But again, being biracial, we, um, I, I I, I, you feel a connection when, when, when you can actually see someone who looks like you doing something that you love as well. So he was my top one. And representation is so important, especially when it comes to growing the game. It shows that you can do it. Like you said, if you can see it, you can dream it. Mm -hmm. How did you use that messaging in your own self and your own career to be a role model for the next generation as others were for you? Uh, yeah, that's a good question as well. Um, just try, trying to do a little bit of that even now and just making myself more available and more vocal as well with a lot that's happened in the past year um, with regards to Black Lives Matter um, throughout the pandemic. I mean, this isn't anything new for the minority community, but uh, choosing to use my platform to kind of speak up on some of uh, our own experiences and it pains me to honestly say that a lot of the times I do speak up, but there's still part of me that's reserved thinking like, should I do this? And it's not because I don't believe that my words are true or that they should be heard. It's a fear of, uh, is this going to displease a certain group or crowd or, or, or whatever demographic of people? And that's pains me that, that I feel that because I shouldn't have that hesitancy. So to try to, uh, you know, leverage my position to inspire more minority youth in the game of hockey who are playing hockey and are maybe, you know, being victims to a lot of racial epithets and racial experiences um, that they want to quit the game. I want to be that representation, as you say, to um, encourage that hockey very much can be our game as well. And it could be shown through people like myself. It doesn't mean that you don't still experience these hard things, uh, but it means that you can be bigger than them and that you can fuel your way past uh, certain racial experiences or marginalization or oppressions in the game or any community if you want to, and that you can grow to be greater than what those narrow-minded uh, opinions are. And in at times even use them as fuel to, to prove your doubters wrong. So it, it, it is challenging at times, but that's, I guess, one way that I would be trying to continue to encourage and motivate and just be, again, a, a, as much as I can sort of stay in and around the game now in this light so that young minority athletes of color can see me and are aware that there are guys like myself uh, that have done it. And that means I can still do it, too. I, I love listening to what you're saying. I, these words are super powerful. I, I love the fact that you said, you know, you, you had to build yourself into a video game <laughs> to see that representation. That is, that is powerful. That is, that is, that is some great stuff. So I really appreciate you sharing that. And, I, you know, it comes down to it. We're talking, you have a platform, you're using that platform, but you're also getting your hands in there. You're really hands-on. I'd love to ask you about your clothing line, Blackburn by, uh, by Big Shug, um, which has a percentage of the proceeds that help subsidize youth hockey fees for minority and underprivileged families. So that's not just talking the talk here. And that's not just representing. And that's not just being you know, a black hockey player in the league. That's trying to grow and build up that next generation mm -hmm. of players that look like you and that are going through what you went through. 
Uh, talk a little bit about this platform and using that um, to really help people. Yeah, to be honest, um, I mean, this is something I just kind of came up with playing around. I, uh, I'm, I'm into some fashion. I just kind of, you know, have my own style, like, like kind of the clothes I wear. And excuse me, I'm from a community in Ottawa called Blackburn Hamlet. It's a proud little community. We're probably about nine, eight to 9,000 people, but completely surrounded by, by uh, NCC green space. So it's like, we can't grow, but you can't infiltrate us either. You know, if you don't need to stop there, you just drive on by. Uh, so it's just become a very proud community, but so many of my close friends are, we're all from there. We grew up playing hockey together and having the, I still train there. There was a gym I would still go to to train my entire professional career. And just being deep rooted into my community, my community did play a big part in getting me to where I was as far as just who I am, the athlete I became, um, some of my character and value qualities. Those are all things I really strongly felt were um, formed by my community and the people in my community. And I started making hoodies and t-shirts that just had the cool logo, cool way of saying like Blackburn on it and threw the buy Shug in there. And all of a sudden people were like, where'd you get that? <laughs> we want a Blackburn hoodie too. So, uh, okay, I'll start making them in mass, I guess. And uh, obviously it was always expecting it to kind of be just, you know, small potatoes, but anyways, it's grown a little bit. It's something I started in 2018, but now that I'm retired as of this year, uh, I have the ability to build it up a little bit more. So our website, uh, is actually officially going to be launched. It was just a landing page for a while, but the online shop and everything will be launched. And, and one of the things for me walking around Blackburn, I remember, going on walks with some of my boys when I'd come back from, you know, my whatever current season and the snow's all melted, you know, but hockey's still in the air, the play, you know, playoffs are around the corner and you'd see, you know, on my street, there's a young Afghan family playing hockey uh, down at the park on the ball court. There was, you know, another just mix of multicultural kids playing hockey. And there was a lot of just hockey happening around from people who weren't white. But at the same time, I also knew that a lot of these people may not be able to afford hockey, but this is their version of it, right? It's street hockey, it's road hockey, it's ball hockey, which is still great about our sport. But obviously with hockey, ice hockey, there's uh, a challenge, you know, for a lot of social economic reasons that it's not really accessible for everyone. And that pains me because I've had such a privilege and such amazing experience uh, in life because of my um, relationship to the game of hockey. So I wanted to, I mean, if I'm a kid from Blackburn and there's a lot of kids from Blackburn, well, who's to say that their experiences can't be different than mine? So I just want to, again, anything I'm doing or try to do, I, I have an element of, uh, of community or grassroots sort of connection to it, to be able to try to provide similar experiences that I've been very fortunate to have for those who can't. So it's, yeah, so a portion of the proceeds from the clothing sales um, go to subsidizing the hockey fees for, uh, for youth who can't otherwise afford it, whether that be minority families or just underprivileged families. And again, it's, uh, it's, it's something that I'm just very passionate about because hockey has blessed me with so many great opportunities in life, but it really does pain me that it's not accessible for everyone. And that unfortunately, for, again, for social economic reasons, a lot of kids who look like me I may never get the experience to enjoy the pastime I got to enjoy and has been able to provide and put so much food on my table for my family and I. So um, that that's where that kind of passion comes from is, is if I'm just going to be making some of this swag myself, I may as well have a good incentive behind doing it. Yeah. You know what? It's, it's a fantastic program for fans that are listening and want to check you out. That's um, Blackburn by Shug.com. I just checked it out. It's got some pretty sick hoodies. I like it. Uh, it's good stuff. Um, you know, and, and it's just another program that's helping, uh, you know, build up youth hockey and underprivileged communities. I know the devils with hockey and NJ is a fantastic program. I know the Blackhawks have a pretty significant program in Hispanic communities around Chicago. And, and that's great to see a lot of teams do this stuff. And uh, it's kind of cool to see a former player starting um their own thing on their own and not necessarily going through a brand you've branded it yourself it's it's your brand blackburn by shook so that's really cool uh i'm gonna ask you about something else and that's uh, making a documentary about black nhl players and that and their experience can you go into a little bit more depth about that project yeah absolutely we um so the documentary idea is again i whether it be fashion uh, film i've obviously had other passions outside of sports and that's one of the best things about my career, to be honest, in the NHL is the, 
the greatest things I did as a hockey player was networking and using my platform to rub elbows with some very interesting and influential people in multiple industries. So having an interest in film uh, many years ago, a few years ago, actually a friend I made in New Jersey, um, Tom Bernard, he's uh, one of the co-owners of Sony Pictures Classics. Uh, so he's, you know, I'd, I'd hear his name every year uh, being announced in someone's acceptance speech at, a, at the Oscars. But he doesn't care about any of those people. He kind of wants to hang out with hockey players. <laughs> you know, he just wants to like be a normal, humble human being. And that's how you vibe with him. So a few years ago, I connected with him about this idea. And he basically said, you need to build a reel and, you know, figure out kind of what lane you got to get into first to build your reel. So in the documentary storytelling world, um, I have a lot of other ideas of stories that we could tell. But for me, it would obviously be starting with sports and then hockey. And what would the hockey story be for me? And it would be that of the experience of the black NHL player and a group that I always really admired because they were able to have a brotherhood within the brotherhood. Hockey as a whole is such a the camaraderie and fraternity that we share amongst ourselves as athletes. Uh, there is a very strong bond there. But again, when you're a minority and you're often on an island within this fraternity, it's you're comfortable, but you're sometimes hard to just again, associate uh, or perhaps others, it's harder to associate with you. And so these five guys out of Scarborough, a uh, suburb of Toronto, which is only about 15, 16 kilometers. I don't know what that is in miles, but <laughs> kilometers um, from, the, in my opinion, the mecca of hockey. And this town kind of goes, you know, unnoticed when it comes to some of the resources that are put there. So the five uh, figures that I admired that I wanted to focus on and kind of telling my story through their experiences, because they have very humble beginnings. Um, that is Christian Anthony Stewart, Devontae smith Pelly, Joel Ward, and Wayne Simmons, of course, another form of devil. And all these guys are my generation um, from Scarborough, very humble beginnings, um, against defying a lot of the odds, all made it and had very significant careers to the NHL, but not without withstanding a lot of um, grief, uh, hardships, you know, and, and, and prejudice along the way. And because of that, I wanted to focus on them to share their, to, to really highlight the community of Scarborough, highlight what they've been able to do and showcase what they've been able to do against such troubling odds. But at the same time, if I wanted to market the game, uh, I would want to market the game through the guys who I know, you know like the, the, guy, the game that I'm connected to, which is kind of the minority lens of hockey. Um, they're great personalities and character, amazing value people, um, all from you know, first or second generation immigrant backgrounds. So again, in, in dipping my toe into the waters of filmmaking, again, uh, I've joined with uh, two Toronto-based uh, directors who are Emmy and Peabody award-winning directors. And they love the story and they're helping me now make it. We're actually just completing the trailer, I believe, uh, hopefully this week. Um, and it'll still be probably, well, pandemic has certainly slowed us down and it may be a couple of weeks out, or sorry, a couple of years away still of completion, but uh, Scarborough Boys, yeah, it's a, it'll be a story of, of again, highlighting the black uh, NHL players experience. But again, trying to showcase and, and market and to grow the game again for that minority youth who can now have something really cool to look at and to watch and think like, look at the, like, I'm no different than these guys, and especially that they came from such humble beginnings. It kind of, it took a lot of community and, and, and family members and people to help subsidize their fees for them to even be able to afford to play, but look at what it got and look at where it got them, you know? And that's just, I, I love this story because we all made it to the same place, but the traditional hockey story is one of privilege and one of, you know, affordability, and that just isn't the case for a lot of us. So I wanted to take a moment to, you know, again, just shine a light and really showcase some of the individuals who are incredible people, very tenacious and amazing work ethic. And again, defied many odds, both on and off the ice to prove that they do in fact belong and can be iconic players as well. You had a Players tri Tribune article last summer, and it really spoke a lot about your experiences in the sport. And I want to first off say thank you for that article and your vulnerability and for putting all of those experiences 
out there in the public. Cause like you said, you do have that inner monologue sometimes telling you like, should I be saying this? But something that really stuck out to me, not only in this conversation, but that article is about disrupting the game to make it better. And you speaking out about it, is it to shame the game or take away from the sport you love? It's to make it better. Mm -hmm. And sharing these experiences, having that documentary coming out in the next few years, allow a predominantly white sport to really understand the community that these minority or marginalized players are going through. What message do you have to fellow white players in the league and how they can use their platform to not only spark change within hockey culture, but also support their teammates who do feel like you said on an Island sometimes and not Mm -hmm. fully supported. Um, Yeah, that's another good question. I I would say What my message to my fellow peers, white peers would be, um, and I say a bit of this in the article is, is focusing on that. We, we need that allyship. This has been what, what, unfortunately, again, what the last year has shown us and has highlighted so much um, is that we clearly still aren't at a place of, you know, real equality or inclusion in a lot of ways. And unfortunately, this is something that minorities uh, in North America have known for centuries and not to act like, because I'm, you know, biracial, I have this deep rooted pain from hundreds of years inside of me, but to some degree I actually do because I see people like me being treated in a, in, in a horrific manner um, that hasn't really stopped in some way. And from the riots to, you know, police brutality to whatever it may be, that's still happening today. Uh, that was happening in the 60s, uh, you know, in, in the Civil War, what happened, like there, there has been wars, there's, there's been revolutions, that, and, and it's still happening today. So this is nothing new for the minority community. I think we're just living a little bit more in a world where we're able to showcase it a bit more broadly to the whole audience, the whole world. So in saying that to my peers is, if anything's taught us in history, It's that if this is a solely a minority fight, things aren't going to change because they would have centuries ago. So that being the case, if you have the opportunity to use a platform or or have a platform at all, this isn't about Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. This isn't about trying to tear down, you know, the foundation of a sport like hockey. And and it's not about any of that. We're about talking about societal and, and humanitarian issues here. And no different than in the last, I would say, maybe 10 years of the game of hockey has become far more aware of uh, foundations like you can play and and uh, LGBTQ uh, rights within the sport and trying to create a safe environment for that community to very much feel part of our community. Well, if athletes can start to understand that and on the humane level of, well, let's just take a few words out of our vocabulary so that if there is a gay teammate in our room, we can make him feel more comfortable. We don't have to make him feel marginalized and living through silent pain. Well, if that same human emotion can be expressed there, then it should be expressed towards other minorities as well. And that's something that I know is scary at first because speaking on racism can be a tough conversation, not so much for the minorities, but unfortunately for the majority and for the white population. So again, what I would encourage my white peers is on a human level, understand if you can fight and bleed for me on the ice, then we need to have that same type of care for each other off the ice, which I know my peers would care for me that way, but it can't just uh, come from a tweet or a post or a one-off. There's allyship that's needed, but there's advocacy that we need to follow that. And it doesn't mean you have to, you know, create your own foundations or, you know, lead your own marches, but it very much means that starting from your own family, your own raising your own children to uh, if you see an unconscious bias or a microaggression happen in the workplace, or you see a teammate say, ah, well, he can do that, but that's just because he's black or, or you they look at me as a minor, as a biracial guy, well, you're not that black because you're, you play hockey and you know, your mom's white. But then I do something that's like, well, that's because you're black. Well, which one is it? Am I not black or am I black? You guys keep changing your mind on this and treating me differently based on the day of the week. So it's those types of things that athletes need to be aware of. How does that make that individual feel? Sure, we might be just be joking and he obviously rolls off his back, but 
why is it a joke to us? Or why is that a comment we feel we can make because it's actually marginalizing him or an individual um, every time? So it's understanding that the power of the minority voice has been silenced in the past and easily could be again. But the power of the majority voice has full capabilities of transforming uh, how we live. And so it's not just enough to say, I stand with you, but to be able to, you see you're a witness to something, nip that in the butt. Hey, we don't talk like that, or we don't do that here. Um, to, to treat your, to, to educate your, your own kids and your own family and youth in the same manner. Um, to have a, take a moment beyond just the month of February <laughs> to, to say something to the media or to make a post about this is a great article I read or this athlete really inspires me. And not just in a way that I stand with him on the field or on the court or on the ice, but outside of that as well. Because I can promise you, even though I'm a biracial athlete, when I've played for the Toronto Maple Leafs, I've driven in my SUV by police officers with a staff member, not even a player, but a staff member of the team. And he commented on me to me, he said, did you see how those cops just slowly rolled by and stared at you? And I said to him, I welcome to my life. But the uh, irony of course, is if they pulled me over for any reason, they'd be like, oh, you're Mark Fraser with the Maple Leafs. You know, so it's like, I don't have that privilege of just not being perceived that way my pers uh, my my perspective is totally different because of that I'm a very smiley friendly guy I'm sure you guys can tell um but it's if I'm not always walking around with a smile on my face uh, I, I at times can be deemed a threat solely because of the color of my skin I need my peers to understand that simple fact that's all that it is and because of something that is an intrinsic factor that I cannot change about myself I get treated differently daily, um, somewhere in life. And those are the types of things that make it very difficult for us to be unique and, but to, to, to grow together. I mean, different perspectives are what help us grow different. You can't win a hockey game. If you all have players that all do the exact same thing, you have need of different positions and different awarenesses and different, um, you know, skill sets. And it's no different in any walk of life. We'll be better together if we can, form more uh color you know across across our platform so that's uh something i would say to my my white peers is allyship is a hundred percent needed in these times but advocacy is as well beyond just the tweet or a post we need to know that our you our brothers in arms um are willing to risk losing a few followers to say something that's in support of us and our lives I really appreciate this this conversation because it is so important and I know it's it's not your place or your job to educate us but I do appreciate you telling us about your experiences and sharing what we can do to better support you because you know the league is pushing hockey is for everyone the devils we have really tried to get into our community and support them and I think you have the best analogy for it you can't win a hockey game if you're all the same type of player so let's embrace let's bring us all together and it is Black History Month, as you mentioned, as we're recording this right now virtually. What are some of your favorite Black moments in the sport of hockey? There have been some that have been highlighted throughout the years, but what's one of your favorites? Okay. Uh, you mean just from like, uh, from Black athletes, from Black hockey players? Black hockey players, Black moments. I know the um, slap shot was actually created by a Black player. So what's I, yeah, one of your favorites? I, I've heard that. <laughs> I wasn't around for that one, but I, 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 I heard that. Um, I was, I mean, obviously iconic and just, just history based, um, you know, Willie O'Ree being the first black hockey player to play is, is that's just the pioneer stepping stone that without him, um, you know, none of us are able to, to, to be where we are. Um, that's obviously a huge one. Um, I, I would say anytime I see a black player just being recognized, whether that be for uh, an award or whatever it may be, a title, Jerome Aginla, um, I still think he should have won the Hart Trophy over, I think it was like Jose Theodore. So I can't remember the goalie was a bunch of time, but he won the Maurice Richard. Um, you know, he led the league in scoring. Have a black player lead the league in scoring. Um, even a guy like PK, having him win the Norris Trophy. Have Wayne Simmons be the MVP of an all-star game. 
you know, those are, and I think he also might, I don't know if he won or was at least uh, nominated for um, the Mark Messier award, I, I believe as well. Um, to me though, and those, those last couple are guys, obviously my closer to my age. Um, but those are some of the ones that I, I love seeing is anytime there's a moment to ha- to have an athlete highlighted, it clearly means they, for something good, obviously it means that they're, they've hit a certain, you know, prestige and notoriety and, and, and they've really made it, you know, I made it, but a lot of people still don't know who I am. <laughs> I didn't win any significant awards, but seeing that uh, Bryce Salvador being one of the first black captains, you know, um, again, same with the Ginla, but like I played with Bryce as everyone knows. And, and I wasn't on the team anymore when he was named captain, but like I was honored when he was named captain. Cause it, I know what that would mean you know, and, and then I did get a time to play with Bryce as a captain. Unfortunately he was injured um, and we didn't actually get to play again, but um, those are the types of things that stick out to me because they're um, again, back to the representation. That's not just representation, like kids seeing me on the ice being like, Oh, he looks like me. I can do it too. These are guys who are dominant. These are guys who are winning. These are guys who are excelling at the excelling at the highest level in the world while being my visible, very visible minority in their uh, industry. So those are some of probably uh, just moments for black athletes, uh, at least some of the ones that I, or hockey players that I remember that I would highlight. Well, Mark, this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Um, really, really appreciate you uh, sharing the airwaves with us. Uh, actually, I was just kind of getting a little bit choked up there, actually listening to you. I, I would challenge anyone that gets triggered or has an issue with what's going on uh, to just have a conversation with you or at least listen to this one because you are very articulate and you you are clearly a good person. So I appreciate you uh, coming on Speaking of the Devils. Really do. Thank, Thank you. you. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Congrats on the new house, honey. What's this? Carbon monoxide detectors? Yeah, but one on every level. Because you can't see or smell carbon monoxide. And when fuel-burning appliances aren't working right, CO can build up and be deadly. Guys, I'm on it. We just want to know you're safe. At PSENG, we're committed to your family's safety. Know how to prevent carbon monoxide poisoning. If your CO detector goes off, leave immediately. Then call 911. Protect the ones you love. Learn more at PSEG.com slash gas safety. Payroll processing, time and attendance, HR systems, and a different approach to customer service creates what PrimePoint calls the PrimePoint experience. From your first interactions with PrimePoint, you'll notice the difference. And once you become a customer, you'll experience the difference. Painless transition to PrimePoint service. Hold time that averages 7 seconds. You'll never be treated like a number. And you'll get quick, accurate responses to calls and emails from PrimePoint's live U.S.-based customer support. Check it out at primepoint.com. Well, Catherine, I don't think I can say it any um, more different. This was a very powerful podcast for me. I really enjoy talking with Mark Frazier. He's a guy I've known a little bit uh, over the years. Um, we haven't stayed in touch, but I met him in Edmonton. And I remember thinking that he was articulate. I remember thinking that he was a, a kind person and, and very he was very nice to us on the media side. Um, but wow, he is... Uh, he chooses his words wisely and he was definitely a great conversation. Was he not? Yeah. Mark is just one of those players that understands that as a professional athlete, you have a platform and he really wants to use it. And I highly recommend, we mentioned the players tribune article. He did write an article last summer and I do recommend that anyone who's listening to this podcast actually goes and reads it because it is a very powerful piece. And he talks about how, you know, this is an experience that he had and, this is what he's gone through as a black player in the league. And I think a very important point, and we bring this up in the episode is he's saying this because he wants the league to get better. I understand that it can be hard to hear criticism with any of us, with any aspect of our life. Anytime that we get criticism as human beings, it's very difficult, but he's saying all of these things and he's sharing his his experiences and he's trying to make the sport even better. He's not trying to tear it down. He's not trying to do any of that. And I think that's a very important thing. And, you know, he's a great guy and I'm, I loved my favorite part is the story he told about his NHL debut um, that I'm not going to relive the whole thing because I can't do it justice, but it's truly incredible that such a great player was able to have literally a dream NHL debut in his hometown with his family there up on the glass, able to see him. So it was just a very powerful interview and I really encourage those to 
those who are listening to listen to what he's saying, to try to empathize and to understand that we may not be experiencing it, but it doesn't mean that it's not happening. Yeah, I, I th- and I think I think you said something really important there, Catherine, which is you know if you don't think it can get better, I think you're you are definitely mistaken, and I, and I think that that should be the attitude that we all take as human beings, and and, and not even in um, you know social matters. That should be the mindset of everyone. I I always want to get better. We should get better as a society. It can be better and we can be better together. And I think that he, he had some great points in there. I think I already mentioned, but the most powerful bits for me is being a young video game player and making trades to acquire players that look like you because that inspires you and that makes you want to play the game. Uh, You know, uh, creating yourself and your own image in the game. Who, who's played Madden or, or NHL games before hasn't created themselves. I mean, I'm pretty sure that there's some Westcott football players living out there in the cloud that I've created at a time or two, but for him, it's more powerful because you know what? There weren't players that looked like him. So he made himself. And, and I really appreciated that. I thought that that was a great story. Um, and I do want to talk, <laughs> I tried Catherine to buy a t-shirt from his website. <laughs> and I kind of accosted him off after we got off the podcast because it wasn't ready yet, but he promises it's going to be ready within the month. So fans, if you're listening to this podcast, blackburnbyshug.com will be up and running very shortly. He thinks within the month. So uh, make sure you check that out because the proceeds, a percentage of the proceeds go to uh, subsidize, uh, subsidize youth hockey fees for minority and underprivileged families. And I think anyone, Catherine, anyone would agree Hockey is better if we can grassroots grow it, if we can get more people to enjoy the sport. I think anyone can agree with that. And I think that him actually getting his hands into that, I I really appreciate that. I think that that's something very special. Yeah, and it's just, it's amazing to see someone who has such a strong purpose and a platform to show that purpose. Sometimes, you know, there's people in this world who can't have the same platform and share their stories and share their experiences and make the world a better place because they're not as well known. So it's amazing to see Mark and his work and we're excited to hopefully keep having him on and keep talking to him and hearing how all of his projects are going in the future. And Matt, Lo- Matt Lachlan, I will say he really wanted to host this one. I'm kind of happy that he had a prior engagement and I got to step in because I really appreciated this conversation, but you guys will get Matt Lachlan back really soon. So thank you for joining uh, Catherine Bogart and myself, Chris Westcott, on this episode of our Speak of the Devils podcast presented by RWJ Barnabas Health, the official healthcare provider of the New Jersey Devils. 